Phenomenology is a school of philosophy that originated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries with the writing of the German philosopher Edmund Husserl. It was a radical new development in Western philosophy. What it explores is an alternative approach to the truth from that which philosophy has been applying for the past two and a half thousand years. It is as if Husserl went all the way back to Plato and took a different turn-off along the path to truth. This turn-off has resulted in phenomenology having much more in common with the Eastern schools of philosophy than any other school of the Western tradition. In this video, we're going to look at the history and method of phenomenology and explore its kinship with Eastern philosophy in more depth. The seeds of phenomenology can be traced back to the 18th century and Immanuel Kant's distinction between the noumenal world of things in themselves and the phenomenal world of reality as experienced through our senses. This thread was picked up in the early 19th century by Hegel, but the birth of phenomenology as a philosophical school dates to the works of German philosopher Edmund Husserl in the last decade of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century. His formulation of phenomenology was taken up by a circle of followers at several universities in Germany, but the real heir to phenomenology's throne was undoubtedly Husserl's star student Martin Heidegger, whose 1928 work Being and Time was a defining moment in 20th century philosophy. After the Second World War, phenomenology's centre of gravity moved west from Germany to France and there it became a foundational aspect of Sartre's existential philosophy and the philosophy of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Its influence is written across the landscape of continental philosophy in everyone from Foucault and Derrida to Slavoj Žižek and Judith Butler. The word phenomenology comes from the Greek phenomenon, meaning that which appears. The school of phenomenology is dedicated to understanding consciousness in its raw form, taking first-hand subjective experience as its starting point rather than starting with the objective world of nature. It is an experientialist philosophy rather than a rationalist philosophy. To illustrate this, let's use a couple of examples. So if we were to study time from a rationalist perspective, we would look at it in terms of second, minutes and hours. That is the objective, noumenal time that runs at the same speed regardless of the human experience of it. But the phenomenological perspective would look at the subjective first-person experience of time, more like that saying attributed to Einstein. Put your hand on a hot stove for a minute and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour and it seems like a minute. To the rationalist, time is the same, but to the phenomenologist, it can appear very different. Another example is fear. A rationalist might look at fear for the physiological changes that occur, such as the activation of the sympathetic nervous system and the increased heart rate, or else they might talk about observable behaviours of the fearful. But the phenomenological perspective talks about what the actual experience of fear is like, the movements and dynamics of consciousness, and how it colours the perception of the experience. What is really remarkable about phenomenology is that it is a complete reversal of the course of Western philosophy since Plato. Most philosophers offer minor adjustments in the flow of the great conversation. They will criticise their near contemporaries and adjust the course slightly. What's fascinating with phenomenology is that in many ways it goes back to Plato and takes an alternative course. Since Plato's analogy of the cave, philosophy has been riding the rationalist wave, with what's been called the representational theory of consciousness. This representational theory holds that we have incomplete access to reality because our senses are creating a representation of what is real. And so we're missing out on this reality because our senses are spoon-feeding us a warped, personalised vision of what is real. This is the true beginning of the mind-body separation that crystallised in the work of René Descartes. There is a sense of tragedy in the Western philosophical tradition at humanity's inability to access this objective truth. 
Instead, we're stuck in the cave of mere appearances, which is devalued as a poor copy of the objective reality. Phenomenology takes a different tact. Instead of devaluing this phenomenal world of subjective experience, it studies it. What Husserl was trying to do with phenomenology was to make an objective study of the subjective. He was looking to make a science out of consciousness by using systematic reflection to determine the essence of consciousness, its properties and its structures. Instead of the platonic representational theory of consciousness, Husserl offers an alternative theory called intentionality. Intentionality is at the core of Husserl's philosophy of phenomenology. And as is all too often the case with philosophy, you have to be careful not to think of this word in its everyday use. The term originally comes from the scholastic medieval philosophical tradition and was resurrected by Husserl's teacher Franz Brentano. Husserl took the concept and made it the cornerstone of his philosophical school of phenomenology. Intentionality is often summed up as aboutness. This relates to the fact that consciousness is not a thing that can be isolated. Consciousness is always about something. It's always in some kind of relationship and interaction with the contents of its experiences. What is interesting with this intentional conception of consciousness is that it works just as well for the dream world as it does for the waking world. Whether the phenomenon is a fantasy or a reality is irrelevant. The focus is on the interaction between the phenomenon and the consciousness. It is not about the external existence of the object, but about the study of consciousness and how it interacts with the phenomena presented to it, whether those phenomena come from the external world, a memory, or a dream. This meeting between the phenomenon and consciousness is what Husserl calls intentionality. It's the interplay between the content of consciousness and the structures of consciousness. These structures are called intentionalities and they are the many ways that consciousness interacts with the objects of its experience. They are the different relationships consciousness can have with the object it is about. These structures of consciousness are numerous and include perception, memory, pretension, retention and signification among many others. Now that we know the basics, let's talk about the methodology of phenomenology. How does one go about doing phenomenology? The first step is what Husserl calls bracketing or alternatively, phenomenological reduction or epoche. What this means is that when we are approaching a phenomenon, let's say a fire, we work to set aside all filters and all judgments. We hone in on the experience of the fire by reducing the phenomenon to its rawest experience. The fire you're seeing could be in your imagination, it could be in a dream, or it could be a real fire. To the phenomenologist, it's all the same, and this all comes back to the idea of intentionality and the aboutness of consciousness, the relationship it has to the phenomenon fire. Once the phenomenon has gone through its process of bracketing and we've reduced it to its raw form, the next stage is called eidetic reduction. This comes from the Greek word eidos, which is the same word that Plato uses for his metaphysical forms or ideas. The goal of this eidetic reduction is to find the essence of the phenomenon. This is done using a technique known as imaginary variation, whereby the phenomenologist varies all the possible attributes of the phenomenon in order to figure out what its fundamental essence is. So let's say you've bracketed off the phenomenon of fear, and now you're applying an eidetic reduction to it. With imaginary variation, you would mess with the attributes of this fear until you boil it down to what its essence is. So after this sort of investigation, you would be left with, as Jose Arcaia noted in his paper on the phenomenology of fear, attributes like a feeling of lacking choices, and the sense of freezing that accompanies the fear. What you are doing is separating the necessary parts of the phenomenon from the contingent parts to get to its essence. This essence is the end goal of the phenomenological investigation. For Husserl at this point, we have arrived at a universal scientific truth. We have reached the essence of the phenomenon, and this should be as true for you as it is for a Kalahari Bushman. But Husserl's successor disagreed. 
Husserlian phenomenology aims at developing a pure, rigorous science that seeks to capture knowledge of essences by bracketing all conditions that may make one's consciousness of something partial. But with Heidegger, the project of phenomenology takes a different direction. Husserl's phenomenology was aimed at developing a pure, rigorous science that would capture the knowledge of essences. Phenomenology was to be a scientific discipline. With his ontological twist, however, Heidegger has a different perspective. For him, science is just one way of knowing. Philosophy goes a layer deeper. It is prior to science and provides it with its foundation. Whereas Husserl's primary concern was formulating the science of consciousness, for Heidegger it was ontology and understanding the nature of being. He didn't believe in Husserl's quest for knowledge of essences and argued that the experiences in consciousness cannot be separated from the contexts in which they arise. You can't give an objective account of consciousness because it is entangled in the world. It is entangled in being, and the conditions of this entanglement vary between individuals, between ages, and between different species. Your fear in the 21st century is different from the fear of an ancient Aztec warrior, and both are different from the fear of a dog or the fear of a gazelle. There is no essence that can be caught and magically bottled. Phenomenology is not a science, but something more fundamental. It is an investigation into being itself. This philosophy of Heidegger is called existential phenomenology, over against the transcendental phenomenology of Husserl. There is a growing literature on the connections between phenomenology and Eastern philosophy. It seems that phenomenology has somehow found a bridging point with the Eastern philosophical traditions of India and China that other schools of Western philosophy have not. Even at a cursory glance this intuitively makes sense. If we look at things like the meridian system of Chinese medicine and the chakra system of the Indian tradition, we see something that looks bizarre from the rationalist point of view. Anatomically speaking, there is no heart chakra or third eye chakra to be found. But approached from the phenomenological perspective, we find that we now have a way of approaching these systems. They are maps of the first person's subjective experience of energy in the body. The ancient phenomenologists of China and India mapped out their embodied experience into these models of the human body. And having been at a number of 10-day silent Vipassana retreats myself, the phenomenological overlap has become really apparent to me. The work of meditation is to observe the body non-judgmentally and not to generate aversion to negative sensations or craving for positive sensation. The goal is just to observe, to look at the experience objectively and experience the impermanence of the sensations. The process of Vipassana meditation is bracketing. It's just to observe the sensations, the biases, the judgments, the resistances and cravings that are constantly bubbling up every moment. Vipassana meditation is a fundamentally phenomenological practice. There's a growing literature on the relationship between phenomenology and these Eastern philosophical traditions, in particular with Zen Buddhism and Taoism. And it even seems that Heidegger's philosophy of Dasein may have been influenced by his reading about the Chinese Taoist philosopher Shuang Tzu. That's everything that I wanted to cover on this episode of The Living Philosophy. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts, insights or feedback, I'd love to hear from you down below. And please remember to like and subscribe if you've enjoyed it. And yeah, that's everything. I shall see you next time, guys. Thanks for watching.